HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone-ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of meeting and learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Sarah Franklin, a writer and food studies scholar who teaches at NYU. In our episode today, we're going to talk to Sarah about her insights on Edna Lewis's legacy, what it was like to get up close and personal with legendary Knopf editor Judith Jones. And in our last segment, we're going to learn Sarah's Julia moment. We'll be right back. In the first part, of Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. As Julia fans know, she was dedicated to not only understanding how to cook, but how to do it right. The same can be said of less famous culinary pioneer Edna Lewis. Just as Julia helped chronicle for Americans what is French food, Edna Lewis helped chronicle what is authentic Southern food. And among the conoscenti, she was better known for her restaurant cooking, something Julia really never did notably at Cafe Nicholson in New York City in the 1950s, and later at several restaurants in the South after she returned there in the 1980s. Further, Edna Lewis's groundbreaking cookbook, The Taste of Country Cooking, published in 1976, has become an influential text, at the very least among food writers and chefs, because of the quality of her recipes, her advocacy of using fresh local ingredients, at the same time Julia was advocating for that too, and as Sarah puts it in her book, The Lyrical Quality of Edna's Writing. A notable difference between Julia Child and Edna Lewis is how famous Julia became, and while Edna maintained a high level of respect within the profession, she's hardly a household name, although that's begun to change. Edna was one of five American chefs, alongside the likes of Julia and James Beard, in the U.S. Postal Service's first celebrity chef stamp series, released in 2014. Sadly, that moment arrived nearly a decade after Edna Lewis's death. 
We first met Sarah Franklin when she completed an oral history project funded by the Foundation in conjunction with the Schlesinger Library at Harvard on legendary cookbook editor Judith Jones. Since then, we're delighted Sarah's quickly made a name for herself as a food studies scholar. And yep, that's a thing. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Todd. Well, it's great to have you on as we dig into season two. I wanted to start off with your recent book, which has the straightforward title of Edna Lewis, At the Table, with an American original. So how, how did you end up editing this book of essays about Edna Lewis? Yeah, so it was it was 2015 um, when the idea for this book came to me. And I had, for the previous three years, been steeped in the world of Judith Jones, who, who you mentioned in your introduction. And I had been speaking with her and studying her life. Um, and one of the things I kept coming back to again and again was that Enna Lewis was the first cookbook author that Judith Jones worked with whose work was explicitly about American food. And it seemed really significant to me in Judith Jones's career that in the mid-70s, she began turning away from focusing exclusively on international cuisines and started being really interested in regional American food. And then I am someone who's very interested in regional American food and the turn towards farm-to-table cooking and and how that connects to issues of sustainability and public health and nutrition and flavor and all those things. So Anna Lewis really caught my eye. Um, and I had first been introduced to Miss Lewis posthumously when, when her essay, What is Southern, was published in Gourmet Magazine in 2008. It wasn't her cookbooks that I first knew. It was her, her prose, um, her writing. And I was really struck by how she was able to integrate talk about cuisine with talk of more generally culture, arts and culture, agriculture, and also race and American history. She was the first person who, for me, sort of pulled all those threads together and suggested to me that there might be a life in, in trying to make those connections. So in some ways, she really paved the way for, for my own interest, my own writing, my own scholarship. Um, and so it was in a it was in a conversation with Natalie Dupree, who there's an interview with in the book um, in June of 2015. And she said, you know, have you thought about doing a biography about Anna Lewis? And I sort of shook my head and said, of course not. I couldn't possibly. And, um, you know, she's such a sort of giant for me. But I did think uh, it was the year that Hamilton debuted on Broadway. And there was this idea, this sort of really resonant idea of retelling an American story, American history also the year that ta Coates published Between the World and Me. It's also the year of the Mother Emanuel shooting in Charleston. And for me, those three things really coalesced into asking myself, what are the sort of crucial stories that we're not talking about in the food world? And it was very obvious to me that Enna Lewis was the biggest. Um, and that was really the sort of seed of an idea for this book, which I wanted to feel like a conversation piece. I didn't want it to feel authoritative so much as um, sort of a provocation, a series of reminiscences, but also questions about why are we not talking about people of color when we talk about American food history? Why aren't we talking about um, the sort of very real history of enslaved peoples informing American cuisine? And, and that was really the basis for how I formulated this book of essays. Well, the book is really beautiful, and it has kind of a combination of essays by very famous people and very well-known people and more up-and-coming people or maybe more niche authors. But it, it's a wide variety of beautifully written things that I think do really bring Edna Lewis and her influences and her life to light. I guess I'm curious to know, because I'm not sure I totally took this away, 
When you say, you know, going back to that gourmet magazine essay that Edna had written on what is Southern, what do you, what's your big takeaway of what Edna Lewis had to say about that intersection between food, Southern food, and race and culture? What What is it that you felt so compelled? Because I think a lot of her credit is, is not connected to race. It's just connected to she was a beautiful writer and she had wonderful recipes and and was a, a sterling cook as well as a fascinating figure? I think that's a really important question. The essay, What is Southern?, she, she sort of drew out something that she did in her book, The Taste of Country Cooking, as well, which was taking things about the American South that many people were familiar, so, familiar with. So, for example, in the essay, What is Southern?, she talked about Betsy Smith, Truman Capote, um, the, the author of The Light in the Piazza, pieces pieces of American culture that were really familiar and resonant to most people interested in American culture at large or American arts and literature, and, and interwoven with calling them out. She was calling out the history of enslaved people very explicitly. And one of the things that was very powerful about that essay is that she talks about, you know, that food belongs on the same level as, as art and literature and sort of does this very... Um, Artful. Oh, by the way, many of the African-American cooks who developed Southern cuisine were illiterate, didn't know how to read or write, so there was not a history of being able to publicize their accomplishments or their innovations in the way that, that white authors, and particularly white women in the South, were able to do. So it's a, it's a really overtly political essay, and if you read The Taste of Country Cooking carefully, if you read the essays, that same idea is woven throughout there. And Lewis talks about her grandmother who was enslaved, who was a brick mason, who had to leave her babies in their cribs all day long without child care and go off to work, um, and how that sort of left a legacy of trauma on her. She would go, for the rest of her life, she would go up and check on her children and grandchildren once she was freed with a lantern at night just to sort of be close to them. So there is this very explicit racial history, and in particular the history of black women, that Anna Lewis weaves into her work um, what what I think is really distinct about it is that it's not brash or aggressive. It's very subtle. It's very literary. And it's there for you to notice if you pay enough attention. But she does not shove it down your throat. Um, and I think that speaks to something that I, I wrote about in my introduction to this book, but I've written about elsewhere, which is the quiet power of cookbooks, that, that women in particular have always understood that cookbooks enter into people's homes, they're very intimate texts. Um, and people then use them to prepare food for their families and loved ones, which is a you know very, very intimate act. And if you insert politics into them, you're really bringing politics into people's homes. It's a way to transcend boundaries. I think Anna Lewis was very, very aware of that. No, that is interesting. It's very subversive because people don't buy cookbooks unless it's explicitly in the title expecting any politics to come with them. That's exactly right. I wanted to pick up on what you said, because I think that's a really fascinating, you know, I've worked with different authors in, in culinary history. And what I think people often overlook about books and publishing is how much you have to keep in context, particularly when you're talking about history, about who was literate and who was not at the time. And the fact that most slaves or many slaves were illiterate was a often associated there there's an assumption that if you're illiterate it's because you're ignorant rather than you're illiterate because people prevented you from becoming literate which i think is still a, a major factor in the the global world today but how unempowering that is because literacy and publishing is a great way to say hey i did this and to put your marker down 
But if you're illiterate, you're at a, you know inherent disadvantage. So you think that's one of the the big things that Edna Lewis brings to light through her writing. Um, I do. You know, I I, I think uh, it is in the way that American history gets taught. I I do feel like, at least in my own experience, the forced um, illiteracy of enslaved peoples is taught pretty widely. But I think people forget that as they grow into adulthood. You know, there's this we keep sort of asking one another, why isn't there more of a record of African-American or indigenous people in this country or immigrants for that matter? And the, and the answer is pretty obvious. It's right under our nose. It's because either people didn't have the resources to educate themselves. And, and in the case of immigrants, that's the reason that many people came in the first place was to offer their children and grandchildren better educational opportunities. But in the case of enslaved peoples and indigenous peoples, there was forced illiteracy. It was illegal to teach slaves how to read and write and and how powerful an act that was by white people to keep black people oppressed. I mean, I think, um, you know, again, Anna Lewis was very careful not to, to sort of shout that out, but she was ready for people to notice it if they read her carefully and to be moved or angered or struck by it. Um, you know, I think I think she's sort of one of the things I said when this book launched um, is that Anna Lewis's wisdom is is wisdom that she's sort of been writing about and talking about and cooking through for quite a long time now. I mean, she started as a professional chef in 1949 and Taste of Country Cooking was published in 1976. But it's really wisdom for now. It's It's been sitting there waiting for us to sort of rediscover it all along. Um, and it feels to me very prescient and, and also very timely. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, the irony is she wasn't illiterate and she did publish several books with one of the top editors, especially for cookbooks in the country. But it's still taken quite a while for her name to bubble up into the not necessarily to be known within the deeper intellectual side of the food world, but to be part of the vanguard or the luminaries that, you know, anyone interested in food can rattle off or even people who know about prominent African-Americans. Why, why do you think that is? Mm. I think that's a really complicated question. I mean, if let's compare her to Julia Child just for a moment. So, you know, Anna Lewis was never on television um, she didn't go on the kind of national book tours necessarily that Julia Child and some of Judith Jones's other cookbook authors did. And I think a huge part of that was socioeconomic. Um, a lot of the women, not all, but a lot of the women that Judith Jones, and the men for that matter, that Judith Jones published, uh, had quite a lot of resources. Either they came from money or they were married into money or they made their own money. Um, and they could therefore afford to take the time off and, and travel some and kind of get themselves into the limelight. And as I think many people know, maybe not everyone, but, but publishing is an awful lot about connections. Um, and by the time The Taste of Country Cooking came out for Anna Lewis in 1976, she hadn't been a restaurant chef for more than 20 years at the time. She was mostly catering and kind of gigging around New York City. Um, she didn't have a lot of money. She didn't have a lot of money for the rest of her life. It's something that several people talk about in the book. And I don't think she could afford to sort of take the time and step away and go out and promote herself in the same way. And I think the second part of that, and, and again, several people address this in the book itself, is that was not her disposition. She was a really quiet, soft-spoken woman. Um, and one of the things that I, I really um, love about her and the way that people talk and write about her memory is that she seemed to have a really keen sense of enoughness. She wasn't necessarily looking to become larger than life or become a celebrity. Um, and I think she was 
I think she was satisfied with a sort of quiet fame, a sort of quiet presence. Those who respected and knew her, she she spent a lot of time with those people. She did cook for events. She taught cooking classes almost until the end of her life. So certainly she was known, um, but but she wasn't seeking fame in the way that some of those early big names in food were. And, you know, again, for contest, contrast, Julia Child certainly loved the limelight. You know, she really loved the stage, and, and she was a performer in so many ways, and, and Emma Lewis was not. No, that that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a great way to contrast it. I wanted to go back to one of the other things that you, you started to bring up and then I'd like to sort of delve into more. So many of the essays raise the point, and that's one we've talked about on this podcast in episode six and episode 11 with um, Stephen Satterfield and John T. Edge, that when you're talking about Southern food, you're really talking about African-American food as it was black people and usually black women who were very much the creators, but then often uncredited. So could we delve a little bit further into how you think Edna Lewis's story helps us understand this or tell tell or retell this story? Sure. Yeah. I mean, gosh, that's, that's you know, it's books worth of information. And certainly John T. Edge has in some ways made it his life's work to, to try to sort of piece that apart and tell different parts of that story. But um Yeah, I mean, enslaved African and African-American women were cooking in plantations big and small across the American South. And and also, you know, it's important to to remind everyone, not just in the American South, also in the North and the Midwest. Um, In the part of Virginia where Anna Lewis grew up and where her family was from, which is the central part of the state in Orange County, so neither neither truly mountainous nor coastal, um, there was not a history of great plantation farming. This was not... Um, the sort of gone-with-the-wind imagery that people conjure of hundreds of enslaved peoples and and real grandeur um, and incredible wealth. It tended to be smaller farms um, where enslaved people were sort of doing the work of farmhands. That's that's certainly not to gloss or glorify um, slavery and the institution of slavery, but just it's, I think, an important thing to point out, and Michael Twitty's essay in my book does a phenomenal job of, of doing this, a reminder that slavery wasn't homogenous, and and the black experience under the institution of slavery wasn't homogenous. So the part of of Virginia where Anna Lewis was from, um, people were really cooking at a family scale. And so the women under slavery, under the institution of slavery who were cooking, were really developing family cooking. They weren't necessarily developing banquet cooking, um, the groaning sideboards of sort of Southern lore. Uh, but, But really they were serving maybe... 10 to 20 people at a time. Um, there were certain certain farms where people would sit down together, black and white. That certainly wasn't common. We don't have any knowledge about whether that happened for any of Anna Lewis's family members. But we do know that they were in this part of Virginia that was deeply influenced by the Jeffersonian tradition. So you had women who were being influenced by French cooking in the colonies, in, the, in what would become the USA, um, and so you'll see French cooking pop up a lot, or French references in Anna Lewis's work, and that's the reason why. These women were actually learning certain elements of French cuisine and French technique in central Virginia. Um, and so, you know, one of the complexities, I think, about, about thinking about black women as sort of the um, progenitors of American cooking and Southern cooking in particular is to think about the fact that that isn't a single cuisine. There wasn't a single Southern cuisine. There were many Southern cuisines. 
And one of the things that Anna Lewis's work does so beautifully is it's it's so specific in its telling. It talks about the things that grew wild in the community where she grew up, um, the sorts of fruits and vegetables and livestock they could raise on their own. It was not talking about the South as a broad region in all its diversity. And I think that's part of the reason that work was so um, resonant for people was it it got, as we say in radio, it got close and it got closer. It didn't attempt to sort of tell the story of American Southern food. It told a particular story of a particular community. Um, and I think that can be very transcendent. I think that sort of level of personal storytelling can allow people to move beyond the discomfort that can come with all the stories of the African-American roots of American cooking and think about a human story, about a community story, about a family story in a way that is perhaps a little more palatable, a little easier to swallow. Well, I think those are great points because I think you're kind of saying it's not it's not to, that Edna Lou is trying to say that um, black women created American food. She's trying to say that black women deserve to be credited with their contribution to American food, which is multifaceted, and that also transcending race, that just Southern food has different regional traditions and isn't one thing, and it's very much of a certain place. I think those are all really great kind of egalitarian takeaways. Yeah. I mean, just to be clear, she does write uh, in the essay, What is Southern?, that Black people created Southern cuisines. She is very explicit um, in that statement. But but I think the point that you're trying to draw out, which is absolutely correct, is it's she doesn't sort of say, um, we are one culture and we created this this aggregate Southern cuisine. She says, we are many cultures, we are many communities and peoples in different geographies and different cultures in the American South, which is vast. You know, it's a huge region. And that we created or contributed to the many cuisines that you find in the American South. She's also, you know, she also pays an important tribute to the indigenous communities, which is often forgotten when we talk about Southern food. But if you think about the prominence of corn, for example, when you mm. think about Southern food, so certainly cornbread, but also grits, things often get breaded in, in cornmeal or corn flour, but they're very, very delicate desserts made out of corn. That's an indigenous contribution. That's not an African contribution. Um, and so, you know, she's, she's, I think she was really sort of a, a lay anthropologist um, and was very keen to give credit where credit was due. Um, and there was no need for her to, to sort of stake the claim of authority. She was, she was really comfortable sharing around the credit. Well, that's a nice thought and a really good point about it, the corn. And then that also corn is something that African-American cooks and white cooks learned from Native Americans and incorporated and modified and tweaked and and turned into what is now American food and and what became global food as it was exported around the world. Yeah. So in your your interview that I particularly enjoyed um, with um, Southern food writer Natalie Dupree, and I read it before I realized that that was actually something that kind of launched the pro process and then you went back to, I thought it was interesting that Natalie was claiming or seemed to be claiming that Edna was quite possibly the first African, not African-American, the first American female professional chef. And I was wondering, do you think, how accurate do you think that is? Or what's your takeaway from from Natalie's claim? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an awfully tricky one because I have a feeling as a historian, um, I have a hunch which the, maybe the, the archives could prove, but probably not because we have to remember that, that for a long time historians didn't pay a whole lot of attention to women. Um, I, I think that's 
probably not accurate. I, I think for a long time, you know, I think I'd even go as far as to say I think that isn't accurate. For a long time, women have been making their livings off selling prepared food. Um, I think it is true that you see that more often in catering, which, you know, was sort of done quietly or, you know, without without hanging a shingle. Um, and so it might, it doesn't have the sort of prestige of having a restaurant. I think what she was trying to speak to, and Emma Lewis was certainly one of the earlier women, I don't know if we can say she's the earliest, but she was one of the first women to be associated professionally with her restaurant. Um, that when people reviewed Cafe Nicholson, when Emma Lewis was there in the late 40s and early 50s, you know, Emma Lewis was a partner in that restaurant, which is incredibly unusual for a woman at the time, and particularly a woman of color. Um, and that her regulars would come in and ask to speak with her. So one of the things um, that her family recalled, her sister Ruth Lewis-Smith, who's still alive in 94 now, remembers Truman Capote coming in in the mornings and having coffee with Edna. The two would sort of, you know, just chew the fat together while while Miss Lewis was doing her prep, um, and she would take a break and come sit at the table. So, so there was an element of what we now think of as a professional or celebrity chef, which is someone who who is represented by their restaurant, that the restaurant is sort of the highest mark of their, you know, their um, artistic output. Um, and I think Emma Lewis was a very early example of that. We certainly don't see a lot of women in history who had that kind of control in a public establishment, partly because women didn't have resources to open restaurants for themselves. And there were a lot of men who weren't keen to give them that power, that financial power. Um, so was she the first? No. Was she one of the earlier people to be recognized publicly for, for having ownership in a business, in a food business? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's my takeaway. She's one of the first to get credit, and thus by getting that credit um, is kind of provides a certain amount of inspiration and a marker um, for the future. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk to Sarah more about her time, as she mentioned, with uh, editor Judith Jones. We'll be right back. If you love the now very trendy, sweet treat Parisian macaroons, like I do, my favorite flavor is passion fruit, you may not realize these colorful and delicate sandwich cookies are traditionally made with only almond flour, which is a naturally gluten-free way to bake. A fun food fact of the week from your friends at Bob's Red Mill, who make their own super fine almond flour from blanched whole almonds, perfect for making macaroons. Visit bobsredmill.com today, use the discount code Julia's Kitchen, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings on Bob's Red Mill products like almond flour. So something I know uh, Sarah is proud of, as is the foundation who helped fund the project, is uh, the oral history project uh, she conducted with Knopf editor Judith Jones, who was not only Julia Child's longtime editor, but was also Edna Lewis's editor. So, Sarah, tell us, what was it like interviewing Judith Jones? Because I know it was at length and it was up close and very personal. So tell us more about that. Um, it was probably the most important professional experience of my life, uh, which I certainly have the foundation to thank for. Judith Jones was 
an incredible, incredible woman um, and very difficult to pin down, as a lot of the people who knew and loved her <laughs> will report. Um, she had incredible composure professionally, and she could, <laughs> as a lot of her colleagues recall, she could really take anyone down in a meeting. Um, by the end of her career, people were very intimidated by her professionally. Um, a lot of literary agents were terribly intimidated by her. It was a life goal of lots of literary agents to sell a book to her. Can I interrupt you, though, Sarah? Describe Judith Jones physically. She was not, she's, for those who've never seen a picture of her, she was not a physically intimidating person. She didn't have Julia's height advantage. Oh, gosh, no. She was, I'm also a very small person, but, but Judith made me look like a giant. I think, I think she was 5'1 in her little kitten heels. I mean, she was incredibly slight, um, very slim, quite short, um, and, and sort of had a quiet, composure about her. She dressed fairly modestly. Again, I only knew her in her older age, but she dressed fairly modestly. She was always well put together, but, you know, she was not wearing really bright colors. She was not sort of announcing herself. Yeah, she didn't enter rooms and you would hear music playing in your head, right? That's right. That's right. However, when she started speaking, you did. I mean, it was like um, that scene in, oh my gosh, what's the Disney movie? I think it's Mary Poppins, where all the birds pop out. Um, and just start singing in tune. That was sort of my experience with Judith Jones. It was like she was so aware of the world after 50 years as a professional editor, and she was so used to paying attention to things and to people and to their words and stories that when she, then when the mic got turned on her and, and you really were able to draw her out and, and begin to get her talking, she just had this incredible ability um, to sort of tell story embedded in culture. Um, she was a remarkable storyteller in her own right. And, you know, she lived a very long life into her 90s and had, so had an awful lot of stories to tell. She was incredibly funny. Um, she was quite mischievous. Uh, she, she sort of always had a little bit of a glint in her eye. And I think that's part of the reason that she caught into food in the first place was it was it was seen as sort of uncouth um, in the in the 19-teens and 1920s when she was growing up on the Upper East Side of New York to talk about food or to enjoy food or, heaven forbid, for a woman to cook food, a woman of privilege. So there was something sort of naughty about getting into food and enjoying it. And she loved to remind me of that in our conversations, that, that she sort of fell into the world of food as rebellion. Um, and she sort of delighted in the fact that it was this, uh, it was this way in which she proved herself different from what she thought of as the kind of stodgy Upper East Side establishment of New York, but it was her way of escaping from that. Yeah, it's interesting. It's really an outgrowth of, I guess, the Victorian era and industrialization where progress in terms of technology and incomes, particularly amongst the middle class, meant that women could, it's not so much that they could totally do other things, but they if they had money and privilege, they no longer had to toil as a cook. And it took, what, almost 50 years for that to be unwound as unsavory, because certainly Julia Child's family and even my mother-in-law Ann Willen's family were not excited about them going into cooking. They were like, why would you do that after all of this other opportunity? And so it, it, I hadn't ever heard someone put Judith Jones in sort of that lineup, but it does make sense. Yeah, I mean, she was very, um, she put herself in that lineup. It was one of the ways that she often started the story, both in her memoir, The Tenth Muse, My Life and Food, and also in a lot of our conversations, she would come back to that. 
um, you know, that, that she was always looking for another way to kind of push the envelope. And she often found that in food. She also really, really crucially found it in literature. You know, she was not only a cookbook editor, and she got really ticked when people assumed that she was, uh, which was one of the things that I really took away from those conversations. She she was very proud of the work that she did with food, um, and she loved it deeply. She loved working with cookbook authors. She loved being able to be in the rest in the kitchen and testing recipes and the travel that came with it and the dinner parties that she threw and got invited to. But she was really... Um, she found it to be a real slight when people assumed that she was only a cookbook editor. She was a heavy, heavy hitting literary editor and edited John Updike for all but his very first book for his entire career, his entire life. Um, I mean, gosh, so many poets, Sharon Olds, who is, who spoke at her memorial service. Uh, she anthologized Langston Hughes. I mean, this woman was a giant in American publishing, period. No, I know. I think that's what's so significant about her beyond the, you know, her relationship with Julia is how one woman in a profession that did not have a huge number of women, especially with her kind of clout, had her hand on so many critically important um works in, in in American literature and in American history and you didn't mention the diary her role in the diary of Anne Frank, which is just incredible that she touched so many key um, cultural influence influencers in in fiction and nonfiction. Yeah. I can't believe I omitted the diary of Anne Frank. I mean this is one of the things about having spent a lot of years thinking about Judith Jones is I think I often forget um, that some of the the things that are most impressive about her are are so obvious to me at this point. But yes, she was living in Paris um, after the war. She sort of ran away from New York publishing and also from a poet that she was romantically involved with at the time who was driving her nuts. Uh, she took a vacation to Europe and, and ended up sort of the legendary story. She left her purse on a park bench in Paris and uh, it had her passport and her return passage in it, and it was stolen. Some people think, perhaps, that she did it on purpose. I don't know. She never would answer <laughs> that question for me, but I wouldn't put it past her. She was pretty crafty. Um, but needless to say, she ended up staying in Paris for three years. She met her, the man who became her husband, Evan Jones, who was a freelance journalist himself um, and very interested in food. And it was during that time that she started working as a secretary for Francis Price, who was opening the Doubleday office in Paris. He was sort of sent over to Europe as a scout. People were getting very interested in, quote-unquote, continental literature at the time um, after the war. And she had a lot of freedom while she was there. I'd seen some of the correspondence from this time. And he would go off for weeks at a time and leave her in charge of the office, which was mostly just the two of them, to entertain people coming through and to deal with correspondence and on one of these occasions, when he was going out, he asked her to file um, and uh, record the presence of some manuscripts that he had rejected, and one of them was the Diary of Anne Frank. And she, when he came back, she said, we have to publish this. She had read it in his absence and was completely compelled by the voice of this young girl um, and made a case for its publication in English, and it's now gone on to be one of the best selling books in the world um, in, in publishing history. So yes, from the moment she entered publishing, her impact on it was outsized. It just shows you that that taste, having good taste and recognizing creative talent is a really important and, and rare um, skill. So pivoting back to food, I wanted to um, ask you what stood out for you most in your conversations with Judith about what she had to say, if anything, about Julia. I think for her, Julia played a really important kind of big sister role. Um, Julia was the first 
major cookbook author that Judith worked with. She had worked with the licensing of some other really important cookbook authors, Elizabeth David, for example, um, who is a major celebrity in the UK and, and in the US at this point, but then was basically unknown in the US. Um, and Judith worked on Knopf's acquisition of some of her books before she worked with, with Julia Child. But, you know, I think she Judith was someone who was uh, as I sort of said before, her eyes were really open to the world, and she had become so interested in the French way of life and, and the French attention to flavor and cooking um, and sort of putting aside work at the end of the day and spending some time, you know, having a drink at the neighborhood bar and then going home and making a fairly simple supper but with very good ingredients, and that that was sort of the ritual of, of home life. Um, and it was a way of sort of stopping the, the workaholism of of the U.S., which I think was really beginning to evolve in those post-war years. Certainly in publishing, it was already kind of full steam ahead. Um, and she wanted to bring it back to the States when she came. And so when Julia Child's manuscript landed on her desk at Knopf, it had been passed along to her. She recognized immediately that this was someone else who wanted to set aside other parts of life to focus on the pleasure and fun and creativity and challenge of cooking, who recognized that there was something worthwhile in all of this. And one of the things that Judith said to me a couple of times that I was really struck by was that Julie Child gave her a tremendous amount of courage. Judith Jones was very, very gutsy, but she sort of took a... Um, a more roundabout way, sometimes sort of a wily way to get what she wanted. Whereas Julia Child was much more comfortable asking for things publicly, at least by by the time that um, the two women encountered one another. She was a little bit older than Judith. Um, she sort of just, her personality was quite a bit louder. She was much more of a sort of public presence. She loved to host parties. Um, you know, she was a joker in a much different way. And she really inspired Judith not to take crap from people around mm. her. Um, and one of the things that, that Judith spoke about a couple of times was that Julia really encouraged Judith to stand up for herself in publishing at Knopf, which until not that long ago was really unfriendly to women. You know, there were lots of women getting into publishing, but they were always, always in lower positions, and they were usually paid less than the men that who were their peers and doing just as much work. Um, and Julia really had no tolerance for that. She felt like women should be given their sort of equal due in the world and should demand it. Um, and though Judith, I don't think, ever got to the same place in terms of brashness, she learned quite a lot and sort of learned how to amplify her voice through Julia. Wow, that. That that that's really fascinating, and and you can see that, and you can see that you know I think Julia came to the table with having both been born into privilege, and I think um, it just always helps being a larger person to be able to literally throw your weight around. But that's fascinating. D did you get to talk to Judith much about um, working with Edna Lewis? A little bit, um, you know, Judith. Judith did a funny thing in our conversations that I've learned from other people who knew her. Um, that she did with others as well. She was very, very protective of her relationship with her authors. And I think she'd gotten more comfortable talking about Julia over the years because there was so much attention paid to Julia. There have been biographies written of her. There was the Julia and Julia feature film, of course. Um, lots and lots and lots of newspaper articles and magazine articles. And, and Judith was often one of the first people that the journalists would contact um, in those in those contexts. And so she got she got 
more comfortable talking about Julia um, and sharing certain things about their relationship, though my guess is there are all sorts of things about their relationship that we still don't know that went to the grave with both of them. Um, Or maybe some of those tidbits are buried deep in the archives, but she was very, very protective of Edna Lewis, I think. Um, I think partly she had a sense that Edna Lewis needed more protecting than Julia, which from what I know about those two women, Edna and Julia, is true. Um, and Edna didn't have the same resources. She didn't have the same things that she could fall back on. She didn't have the sort of ever-supportive husband and partner that Julia had who would go to bat for her publicly. Um, she was she was kind of a lone wolf in a lot of ways. And I think Judith was a remarkably sensitive person. And it's part of what made her such a good editor. Is she, she was able to sense what each of her authors needed from her. And she really honored that. And so she was not keen to go in depth or sort of gossip with me about their relationship. What she did tell me was that she and Anna um, had developed a real respect for one another over the years because their relationship was kind of unconventional. You know, it was north-south, urban-rural, black-white. Um, and so they were constantly crossing boundaries in their relationship together. And in the books they did together, there was a lot of um, articulation of those boundaries and how difficult and painful they were. And I think Judith was really aware that she needed to be careful. You know, it was her job to ask questions, but she was also very able to pull back when it was time. She she did not push too far when it came to asking questions or trying to kind of dig up dirt with people. And she she wanted um, journalists to respect her, her Judith, the same way. They, they didn't always. A lot of people wanted kind of all of the dirt behind the books from her. And she never gave it up. She really, she really kept all of that to herself to the end of her life. Yes, that, there's a lot of dignity in, in, in how she conducted herself as an editor and in her life. That's, I think, adds to why she was so admired. So before we take a break and hear your Julia moment, I wanted to just uh, hear what's next. You've done all these deep dives into these great women. What, what are, are you doing another one? What's coming up with you? Well, I'm working on a cookbook with my husband, who's a chef right now, which is a very different kind of a project. Um, He is a partner in a restaurant up in the Catskills called the Phoenicia Diner. So we're doing a book together with Clarkson Potter. We're furiously trying to meet a deadline right now. Um, And I don't think I'm done with Judith Jones. I, you know, I think there's a really, really big story to be told there about women in American publishing, about food culture in general. I don't know if it would be a conventional biography or something more um, unusual like the Edna Lewis book. I really like, uh, I feel like both of those women have inspired me to try to think about how you break molds. So I'm, I'm keen not to sort of follow in the path of conventional biography, but to think about how to tell that story differently. Um, but I, I think there's, I think there's more Judith to write about. I, I can't, help but think about her all the time. And I think for anyone who writes or tells stories of any kind, usually if someone doesn't get the heck out of your head, you need to, you need to heed that. You need to go ahead and sort of do the work um, until you get that out of your system. So I have a feeling there's a big Judith Jones project in my future. Well, I think we will all be anxiously awaiting further news on that and hearing about this new cookbook. That all sounds very exciting. So we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and Sarah's going to reveal her Julia moment. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Kat, Communications Director of HRN, here with a preview of Episode 2 of Meat and 3. This week, we're talking pork. We'll learn the best way to make a BLT. I don't think I've ever successfully 
made a BLT just because I eat the bacon before any other part. How pitmasters and restaurateurs are helping put small-scale pig farmers back to work in Alabama. It's all about money. That's the bottom line. What pork has to do with economics. Farmers could be particularly affected by China's threat to levy its own tariffs on pork and soybeans. And with government. Basically all of politics is pork at this point. So tune in on Friday afternoon for your weekly serving of Meat in 3. And make sure you subscribe to be the first to know when new episodes air. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Sarah, what's your Julia moment? Well, I have a very vivid memory of sitting in my grandparents' den, uh, which was in Lincoln, Massachusetts, not so far from Julia's Cambridge home, um, watching Julia Child on public television when I was a little girl. And though I don't think I realized it until I became an adult, watching her cook by herself and the clear joy that she took in it. Of course, it was for television, right? So it was a bit staged. But she had so much fun possessing the kitchen just by herself and moving around freely and not having to compromise or ask someone, what can I do or, or direct them, um, is something that I've really taken to heart as an adult. You know, it's, it's a lot of fun to cook with other people, but if I'm being honest about it, I prefer cooking alone and um, <laughs> sort of being in charge in the kitchen. And I, I really look to Julia as my model for that. You know, she just she was so unapologetic about how much fun it was. Um, and how it could be a space for creativity, and you just kind of spread out. You take up all the room that you need, and um, I love that about her. I really, that's something that I um, model in my in my daily life at home a lot, and I definitely have Julia to thank for the joys of cooking alone. I love that, the, the joy of taking time to yourself, and, and that you took away that aloneness, even though obviously Julia was alone on camera, but there were about 20 people in front of her on the, on the camera, but... Um, on the in the studio, but uh, uh, that's really neat. I, I like that, and I'm I'm struck by how many we're we're now doing episode 14, and how many people connect, e- even those who met Julia, their experience with her to the television, and how this kind of static box with a moving screen can have so much personal influence, particularly on on younger people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is pretty intimate to sit in front of that screen. I was alone in the den. She seemed to be alone on TV, even though, as you as you said, she certainly wasn't. And it just felt like she was speaking right to me. And I think for so many people, that, that was their experience of Julia. She just sort of entered their worlds and larger than life and, and felt like she was talking right to you. Yeah, no, I really think that's that talent, that that ability to connect right to you. And, you know, my personal theory that Julia, at least during her lifetime, met every, um, every American there was, um, who left the house. Um, but that was because she was interested and wanted to. Well, it's been great catching up with you, Sarah, and talking more about Edna Lewis. And I feel like there's going to be more conversations to come with all these different projects you have going on. Thanks for being with us. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
My pleasure. Thanks to everyone listening. Thank you for listening. Let us know what you think about today's show. You can reach us by email or even send us a voice memo at contact at joyachildfoundation.org. You can like us on Facebook. Facebook, search at Julia Child. You can follow the foundation on Twitter. Our handle's at Julia Child JCF, and my handle's at T Shulkin, T S C H U L K I N. We're on Instagram. You can search Julia Child Foundation, all one word. To check out Sarah's book, Edna Lewis, At the Table with an American Original, edited by Sarah B. Franklin, is published this year by the University of North Carolina Press, and it's available at select bookstores and, of course, can be ordered online. If you want to keep up with Sarah, she's at Sarah, S-A-R-A dot Franklin dot one two seven on Facebook, and her handle on Instagram is at SBF1025, or on Twitter, Twitter, it's at Sarah Franklin 10. If you'd like to watch any or all of Sarah's oral history interviews with Judith Jones, we will post a link to the Schlesinger Library's video archive on the Foundation social media feeds, which you can follow. Thanks to WGBH for the Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef. Thanks to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, David Tadashore. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. And thanks again for joining us for Season 2. Please remember to give us a review so new listeners can find us. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. Further reminder that we are now on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. So downloads will drop one day later than you might have been used to. But if you're out west, it's easy to listen during lunch now. And in more news, we're now available on Spotify. So if you're a Spotify subscriber or know people who are, it's another easy way to listen. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.